And good morning. It is Saturday, August 21st, and it's time for a very special edition of the Lawn and Garden Journal. Yes, I realize that I'm not Carla Hersina, your usual host, but Carla is here. Good morning to you, Carla. Good morning, Chris. And we're going to be doing a a special thing. We haven't done this before. We have so many email questions come in over the course of the summer that we're going to take the opportunity to answer a few of those uh, over the course of our Lawn and Garden Journal today. But of course, we have to start the show like we always do with a poem. So Carla, what do you have for us today? Well, it's all about summer, and as we're starting to venture partway through, I think there's a little bit of a tribute to the Solstice Queen, and that is summer. So please take a listen. This is called The Solstice Queen. As she tiptoes across the sea, she slips in so subtly, sharing her charms upon the earth, kissing nature with rebirth. She is fair and whimsical, somewhat lackadaisical. She lives in her life in a childish way, never planning day to day, spreading her wings of soft, warm winds. This is how her journey begins. She likes to make her presence known with lavender scents that's all her own. She travels with the monarch king on her finger like an elegant ring, tucked inside her sachet purse. purse. Our fireflies, she will disperse. A lilac bouquet full of honeysuckle rose cascades down her arm to the tip of her toes dressed in golden rays of light her mantle laced in blue and white her lush trail of emerald green her ruffled hem of floral seam from coast to coast and in between in her glory she holds her torch high warming the waters and lighting the sky suddenly she begins to cry and even has to wonder why temperamental she can be her thunderous voice and raging sea. Though she calms down quite beautifully, ribbons of rainbows she paints the sky as she continues to pass on by. She's as wild as the waves in the ocean, as gentle as the sweet southern breeze. She tends to all the nectar that flows within the trees. She rests by where the willows weep and roams through fields of amber wheat. She hides in forests dark and deep and climbs up to the mountain peak then soars to the valleys down below where she watches orchards grow. When evening comes, she wanders off to the starlight skies and gazes at the heavens with her sapphire eyes. She dreams of dawns tomorrow when her ventures begin anew, when waking all the earth by sprinkling morning dew. She is so very fickle, she will not stay too long, never wears her welcome out where she cannot belong. Soon there will come a day We will feel her presence gone. She has crossed the vast horizon where she must triumph on. She's known by many names throughout the land and sea, but we just call her Summer, for she lives eternally. Uh, Thank you very much, Carla. And the Garden Club Circuit Calendar is next. And again, not taking calls today, a special email edition of the show. We'll start answering those email questions after this. And welcome back to the Lawn and Garden Journal. It is Saturday, August 21st. A very special edition of the show today is, of course, we're joined by host Carla Hersina. My name is Chris Sumner, and uh, standing in as co-host today as we do this special email edition of the show. We'll get to our first question in just a bit, but uh, first, Carla, no secret. It's been a very dry year. Have you ever seen anything like this since you've been in the uh, the garden business, if you will? 
You know what? It, 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 this year has been an anomaly. I've, uh, in 27 plus years that's into here, I've never uh, seen such as we've seen heat, but not the heat and the dryness that has been sustained for so long at this time. So, like everyone else, it, there are challenges to be had. Definitely the watering, uh, keeping up with the watering has been a little bit of a challenge, especially when you're indoors in some of the uh, tropical houses and the greenhouses. But, uh, yeah, going through water has been the number one uh, purpose in uh, our garden center and probably in other garden centers. So how do you uh, deal with all this heat and sun in the greenhouses? Because a greenhouse on a cool day is warm. I can only imagine what it's been like on some of these days where it's been pushing 40 degrees. Well, I, I'd like to say I'd like to wring my shirt out a, a, <laughs> a couple times during the day. There's a, a couple uh, change of shifts, but some nice cool rags around the neck, uh, taking a little bit of a break and getting out of some of the heat. And what we usually try to do is on our extre- extremely hot days is sort of getting our tasks done in the areas where we know we're going to be in the very thick of uh, the heat and then getting out where it is cooler. So it's it's planning and organizing. So, But uh, I have to admit that anyone that's in the greenhouse industry that's uh, caring for the plants that are in there, they get acclimated to the heat for sure. Uh, you know, uh, you go home in the evenings, and when it gets to be a little balmy 23, I, I hate to say it, but I, I think I'm looking for a sweater. <laughs> <laughs> so do you actually have to do venting, or do you have doors open? How do you control the temperature so that it doesn't get like 50 degrees inside the greenhouse? Well, we open up as much as we can. It's all doors open, uh, roofs open. We have the advantage of some of our Uh, We do have in two of our buildings a Cravo system. I think we're the only ones in Manitoba that do have it, where we're open to, we're able to open our roofs completely, so it looks like you're shopping outdoors. In other areas, definitely we are using uh, fanning systems and uh, cooling with by placing uh, cooler well water on the floors to get the temperature drop down. But fans have been a saving grace too as well, and with the open roof roof systems, that helps a lot. If you're just joining us, my name is Chris Sumner, co-hosting today the Lawn and Garden Journal with uh, your usual host, Carla Hersina, a very special email edition of the show. And Carla, how about we get to some email questions? Sure, sounds good. All right, our first question comes from Karen Funk. And Karen writes, uh, uh, what attracts slugs to garden areas? Last year, they were super bad along the west side of their yard, along the fence, and in their hostas. They recently found them in their rhubarb in their garden box. Karen wants to know, Carla, what can she use to deal with slugs? Well, with slugs, that is an issue because we find that when you get a high incidence of slugs in your garden, they are attracted to the moisture that is in the garden. And those are usually under areas that uh, have um, a heavy foliage that allows that moisture to be retained underneath. Um, I always find that when we have plants that have larger leaves that keep that moisture uh, in areas where you've actually applied more mulching material, uh, that can add to areas being wet longer and holding it. Uh, So opening that up a little bit will help to deter. You want to get that surface to be watered, but then you also want it to dry out in between those watering patterns. So if you can allow that to uh, to dry out, they're, they're not going to have the most opportune uh, housing area for them. Now, 
for the removal of them, we've heard that there's a lot of things that you can do, uh, even from areas where you can put in like little beer duct traps that's on it. Uh, maybe on a hot day you might not want to give up your refreshment, but if you do pie plates at the level where the, the lip of the pan is at the soil level and there is a little tease of moisture that's in there from that beverage, they will crawl into it, but they can't get back out. So that's kind of a an older tip that's doing it. Uh, there are some newer products like Diatomaceous Earth or Insectagon, which is a organic type of application that you can put in. And it basically, as the powder is placed on the soil, the slug that goes through it, and we're, they're slimy, they pick this up and they're, it kind of slices up their bodies and causes a detriment to it. So there's a couple ways, that, you know, of being able to do it and maybe even introducing uh, I know in some aspects if there's some predatorial bugs like ground beetles and that kind of stuff they will help you also with removing some of that so it's keeping a sort of a equilibrium as to how you're able to get rid of them. Are you surprised at all uh, Carla that we would have some of our gardening friends dealing with slugs this year considering how dry it's been or I guess like you said it all depends on where the foliage is and how wet the soil is I guess. Well if we're in you know, it's everywhere from this year, whether it's, uh, you know, it's repeatedly watering areas. And if it's an area that is low lying, or if it's in an area that if you're watering the rest of your garden, it seems to be always damp in that one area, uh, that could be problematic. Because we know that in certain areas of the garden, if you know that there, it is a wet area from the entire yard being watered at that point, that could be sort of the problematic portion of it that's why we sort of plant plants that like moisture in those areas but when we find that we have these continually wet areas that's the introduction or that's the lead for these other bugs that like those conditions to sort of move in so uh, this year finding that there's uh, slugs in there but then there's other areas you know of some you know some people have had some moist more moisture than in other areas so um, not here where we are, but uh, maybe in other areas they're still maybe uh, targeting or having some uh, trials with these insects. So um, if they are, if you know, if you are, maybe lighten up on that garden hose on that area and maybe go uh, give the, that extra moisture to the drier areas of the garden. Right on. Well, thanks to Karen Funk for sending in that question. And we might as well stick with the, the creepy qualies for our next email question. Uh, this comes from Lynn uh, Carla, and it's, I've tried all the organic products to get rid of my fungus gnats and still have them. Do you have any suggestions of how we can help Lynn get rid of her fungus gnats. She didn't indicate on what these are on, but she would just like to get rid of them. Yeah, um, fungus gnats, it just sort of reeling to people. Fungus gnats, we normally see them early in the spring, and then again, I uh, when fall sort of hits and we still have our, when we're opening our windows to those cooler temperatures, but the houses stay warm, we find that they start coming in and they are small enough they can come through screens uh, if with the windows that are open. But once you have them in, fungus gnats are prone, they're little flies, that they're prone to, again, moist sites. So they like that damp locations they like the soil especially house plants because that's going to be a target area that they're going to go to they love laying their eggs in the top surface of soils 
that are kept moist because it allows the cycle of their eggs to hatch, become an adult, then they're going to fly around and then the adult again is going to cause that cycle to go back and lay more eggs. So we have to break those cycles so that it's not a repeat pattern that's on it. And looking at them, uh, you can again, if we have that moist conditions, we have to remember to allow some house plants to dry out in between waterings. Um, some indicators that they are kept too moist is maybe some white castings on top of the soil that's showing that uh, repeat salts are not being drained through. They like that. Even sinks and drains, sometimes they will go to those areas that have that little bit of moisture that's on it. So allowing houseplants to dry out, cleaning out, and sometimes I know that uh, I like putting a little bit of bleach down some of my, my drains and some of my sinks that's on it that may try and help break the cycle that's on it. If uh, they're in there, sometimes uh, mosquito ducks have been a one item that if you're not able to uh, use some other products, sometimes crumpling some of those. And mosquito ducks are sometimes used for uh, like bird baths and that because it'll keep mosquitoes away. But it's also been known to kind of, it's been reported by some people that little crumblings of mosquito ducks will also uh, be a detriment to your fungus gnats that's on it. And again, we mentioned previously on some other things about the diatomaceous earth or the insecola, which is uh, rendering powder that you place again on the top surface of some of your plants. And uh, when the larvae opens up after the eggs hatch, this again targets that larvae before they can come and create a flying fungus gnat. So there's different remedies. Some of them are the solutions are letting plants dry out, which I find that Plants do better if they're allowed to breathe and that moisture gets uh, removed a little bit between the crevices because we know that plants, even though they're roots that are underground, there's a percentage of airspace that is beneficial for the rooting system of plants for them to thrive better. That's Carla Herson, of course, the uh, host of the Lawn and Garden Journal, and I'm Chris Sumner. It's a special email question edition of the show. And Carla, how about we talk about tomatoes after the break? We love talking tomatoes, don't we? We do, we do. <laughs> that sounds great. We've got a tomato question uh, that we're going to ask uh, from Sherry, it looks like, and we'll get to that question after this as you enjoy the Lawn and Garden Journal. And welcome back to the Lawn and Garden Journal on this Saturday, August 21st. Just a reminder, no phone calls today because it's a very special email question edition of the show. Good morning to you. I'm Chris Sumner, co-hosting today with our usual host, Carla Hersina. And Carla, we promised before the break we were going to talk tomatoes because tomatoes are a popular topic on the show, aren't they? Well, Yes, they are. It has to be. It's a kind of a tradition that dates back that's in there. And tomatoes, they are ripening, and I'm envisioning everyone enjoying their harvest of them because, wow, tomatoes, homegrown, have such a beautiful taste to them, and each variety of them, too, have a little bit of a, a bite and acidity and color and texture that's on it. So venturing into this portion of summer, the bounty from our gardens is looking pretty good. Now, this question comes from Sherry, and here it is, Carla. Could you please tell me if it is good to prune your tomato plants? And if so, tell me how to do that pruning. Well, that's a good question because a lot of times we see that uh, we get a lot of lush growth that's on uh, tomatoes. And sometimes 
if we don't remove some of the branching on it, specifically on some of the determinant varieties, you get this big mounding effect and it's hard actually to see the tomatoes in the setting of it. So removing a portion of some of the leaves is beneficial and it's actually good to remove what we kind of call the sucker portions of it and if you don't know what the sucker portions of it is I always kind of say where there's the lead growth that keeps going upward and upward and upward and then you have your lateral branching and you'll know where your dominant branches are because they're going to be your bigger thicker ones as the plants are produced or were produced but as these plants develop it's unlike uh, annuals where we want those secondary or tertiary branches developing in basically the the V or the crotch of where the main stem goes up and the first uh, lateral branches are. They're the little suckers that start producing and those of it will eventually produce um, more greenery and possibly more flower sets. But by removing those suckers it opens it up and it puts the energy into the main frame of the main branchings for them to be able to develop their fruits and it actually is beneficial too because you want to open up some of the light so it gets to the fruit of the tomatoes that are on there which helps it to uh, ripen as well. Now the other side of it is and in some of my adventures I was able to tour on some of the tomato uh, producers where they actually take indeterminate tomatoes and believe it or not these tomatoes are grown on wiring or cording that okay my five foot two stature is is very short in comparison to the length that these tomatoes will grow and when you're looking at it they actually remove a good portion of these suckerings and of these leaf structures in order for this the energy to go more to the fruiting aspect of it so removing some of those excessive leaves is beneficial we know that and the other thing too is one of the aspects is by removing some of the lower leaves because the other aspect is a removing the lower leaves allows for maybe uh, prevention of having uh, bacterial and fungal uh, matters from bouncing back from the soil up onto the leaf structure which sometimes causes a little bit of a demise or a cause of blights and that to the tomato leaves okay so removing the suckers is good removing a portion I would probably say one-third of your leaf structures as the plants are maturing and then again raising up those lower leaves from the ground upwards is a plus a plus and a plus on all three measures now is there a time of year that you should be doing your pruning or will tomatoes accept pruning if you will throughout the growing season or is the potential of harm there if you do it too late in the year well, I don't know if it's too late in the season because as you know, as certain plant structures remove, I think going later in the season when temperatures start to cool but our plants are still producing, it just allows a little bit more of the light to get to the ripening of the fruit that's on it. I know some people uh, will leave tomatoes on very late in the season that's on it and they're actually harvesting green tomatoes and putting claws over them on boxes on counters for them to be able to ripen. I always like to keep my tomatoes on the vine and vine ripen. I find that they're a little bit sweeter that way. So by opening up that leaf structure it's fine. You're not going to totally defoliate the tomato plant but uh, any bacterial or any leaf structures that are stressed as we advance into the season I would remove those but um, I don't think there is a threat to removing, you know, we're not going to defoliate the whole thing, but 
definitely the ones that are um, yellowing may be removed because you know that they're not going through that respiration. They're in the shutdown mode. So that's one of the indicators that could be uh, looked at as well. Let's talk a little bit about ripening tomatoes on the vine because I know that's something that I've struggled with in my garden the last couple of seasons, Carla, is that I have these these tomato plants, and I admit I haven't pruned them as much as I should, but they just won't ripen, and I feel like they're getting you know a good shot of sunshine every day. Is there anything we can do outside of pruning to try and hasten that ripening on the vine process? Well, that's part of the thing too. Is if now there's a couple little things that are sort of the wives' tales. That's about it, <laughs> and it's it's removing the foliage is going to help for the plant to recognize that it has to ripen some of the fruit. So that's one portion of it. So if you're seeing that you have a high percentage of fruit that's on it and it's not changing color or getting that ripening hue that's to it, by either removing some of the foliage is going to help to advance that. So that's one aspect. Um, removing some of the blooms or the newer blooms, if you can sacrifice some of those, because again, um, it's shared work, shared aspect. If you have new blooms being set, plus trying to mature fruit on the same plant, just think of all the energy and the work that it's trying to do for us. So the brand new blossoms, if there's no time for that fruit set to be done, remove. And the other thing is, Reduce the amount of water that at some point, if you slightly start to cut back on the watering system of these plants, that's also an indicator, hey, hey, I have to get my fruit ripened because the cycle of the plant is, and this happens with flowers too, if I have reduced watering and my new sets have been removed, I have to continue my cycle. So in essence, the tomato thinks if I have to ripen my tomato so that my seed set gets done. But we're just faking it and sort of saying, okay, we don't want you to produce new leaves. We don't want you to produce those brand new blossoms because we know there's no time for you to set. So what does the plant do? Hey, let's ripen some fruit. So that actually is a confirmation of a, a old wives' tale as we were just chatting about there of something I've heard from some of my neighbors is that by cutting back on watering, that will actually force the plant to ripen. That's what you're saying, Carla? Well, yeah, because it's the survival mode. It's like it's going to be shutting down. And I'm not saying take it to the point where it's going to be wilting, but it intrinsically will know that if water resources are cutting down, then as the season's progressing, these plants know that it's going to be the end of season. So they put their energy into the fruit because the fruit then knows that it has to ripen because what's inside that fruit, if it's not eaten, it's the seed set. And most plants need to continue and it's their life cycle to produce a flower and after that flower is gone they have to produce a seed so that the next generation of that flower can continue onward. I want to play off this uh, part of the conversation here about tomatoes and and ripening on the vine and watering and that's this concept of uh, how areas of hard pan like it's been so dry uh, Carla that it seems the rains that we have had over the past couple of weeks a lot of it is just washed off our yards or washed off our gardens. Is that true too, that if, if your garden is hard panned, even though you're watering, you may not actually be getting it in the soil? It could be just running off? That's very true because A, uh, you'll get horizontal scatter of, of water because it will find the quickest way. And if it there isn't some type of medium that allows that to be wicking in, um, we see that in some cases where you get overland water that runs because it's not it doesn't have the purpose it's so hard 
that there isn't that wicking system that allows it to drain in. So yes, we want to be able to, and to help to accommodate that is working the soil so that it's not flattened, tilt it up, turn the soil slightly so that you're able to get the moisture so it gets into it. Because once you get especially uh, clay-based soils, once they get compacted, and a lot of times soils will get that flattened sort of look to the garden that's on it, and it doesn't have time for it to wet in. So if we get those hard rains that come fast, they're going to spread out horizontally before they go downward. That's why it's kind of in encouraging that we, if we get do get some rain, that we get slow trickles of water so that we can get it wicked further down. So that's why we're encouraging that if you're watering uh, soaker hoses at the ground level so it's a slow steady stream so that we're able to moisten that ground so then the next sort of segments or the next time frame of moisture that you're watering is going to be able to wick further downward into it. And that's going to be optimal for some of the plants. Carla Hersina, host of the Lawn and Garden Journal, alongside uh, Chris Sumner. That's me, special co-host today, as we enjoy a special email question edition of the show. Now, Carla, you mentioned to me before we got on the air today that you did want to talk a little bit about um, some of the rejuvenation that folks may be seeing in their garden since the uh, the uh, rain that we had over the past week or so. How about we pick that up after this break? Sounds like a plan. All right, we're taking a short break. Remember, no phone calls today, email questions only, and we'll answer some more after this. And welcome back to the Lawn and Garden Journal. It's Saturday, August 21st. Just a reminder, no phone calls today as we enjoy a special email question edition of the show. We're going to be answering our next email question from Liz Enns in just a couple of minutes. And of course, Lawn and Garden Journal host uh, Carla Hersina is uh, joined by me, Chris Sumner, co-hosting today. And Carla, we wanted to talk about something that folks may be seeing in their gardens right now. Uh, a good portion of southern Manitoba has seen rain and in some cases significant rain over the last uh, seven to ten days uh, we could be seeing rejuvenation but we also for areas that haven't seen that rain could just be seeing that tiredness uh, you wanted to talk a bit about both of these factors today yeah it's one thing that we see as that we see the progress of plants maturing through the summer as a we know that containers and some hanging baskets will get a little portion of it where if we um, if they didn't get the moisture or if they're stressed or they're they're just getting very long on their growth. There is that rejuvenation factor that we can put back into our, our gardens and into our plants, perennials and annuals. And it's that uh, we start to see it as the summer progresses because A, we're starting to see that we may be getting a little bit more of that dew on the lawn in the morning because there's going to be some cooler evenings that we're going to be experiencing. There's going to be a little bit of moisture that's been given back to the plants too as well. So this is a good opportunity to sort of trim back the plants because as these cooler temperatures come and they've been trimmed up, we see new branching forming. We see the re-energize in some of these plants to say, it's not over yet. I still have it in me to give you some beauty. So these are the purposes of sort of saying the stressful summer, yes, it's been hot and we've been watering and watering, but there's the potential for more plants to still give you that effect. And as we get into September and October, and we have to remember, this is one portion that I always say is uh, we find that Historically, in the next little bit, our seasons have, ex- our fall has been extending even further and further. And 
some of the gardens late September, late October last year looked beautiful just like an early spring because we put the energy back into trimming deadheading and allowing the plants to continue and for those and i must admit i have one container in my front yard that succumbed to some of the heat because it was off by the side it's also given me an opportunity to say okay um this plant i i will say it's an ipomea that did not make it but i think i might be switching my container now for a fall planting and i might pop a little uh garden kale in pink in pink color tones just to give it that next view so and that's the same aspect with our perennials if we get out into the gardens with some of our perennials uh, trimming off some of those spent blooms sometimes gives that plant the energy to sort of say okay they're going to have that refreshed look the cooler temperatures a little bit of moisture you could get secondary blooming on some of your perennials I know this uh, may seem self-explanatory, Carla, but I did just want to talk a little bit more about deadheading. Just how important is it for us gardeners to be out there and, and doing that deadheading, whether it's our annuals in our flower beds or what we have in our pots? Well, deadheading, uh, it depends too, because in some new annual cultivars, deadheading isn't required. But the one thing is, if you what we classify as deadheading is sort of basically giving plants a haircut. If you do a slight trimming back of sort of that one-third theory that if I take one-third of the tips off or one-third of my branching off, it's going to cause the regeneration of more branching, which then causes more blooms. But in some plants that benefit from the deadheading, and the deadheading is removing those spent flowers or spent blooms, it causes the plant to, again reverse its thought that I have no seeds to develop and ripen. So what do I need to do? I need to produce more flowers so that I can then have my seeds. So it's kind of the reverse on the tomatoes, to the tomato aspects. We want them to think that they don't have a seed generation. There's nothing there. So they need to produce more flowers. And on the other side too is fall and as we see maturity of some of our seed heads there are some people that may want to do some seed collection so there's two sort of brains of thought that okay I might not take all the seeds off because I might put a little ziploc bag over a portion of it and collect some new seeds for next year's growth that's an option too as well or the thing is you're doing early tidy up and you're starting to put some energy in the garden and maintaining and doing a little bit of early cleanup. It just keeps the garden looking crisp. And I have to say too, on some aspects, if you allow certain seeds to go to seed, they will self-germinate or they will spread. In some instances, uh, gardeners do not want new spreading of it. They'd like to maintain that nice clumpy look that they want uh, it's basically saying, I planted you here, I want you to stay here. I don't want your baby seedlings everywhere. So that helps in the elimination of uh, new seed sets from happening. You know, um, And some people, if you have the large acreages, this may be an opportunity where you say, I love this chrysanthemum daisy, I'm going to let it go to seed and spread so that I have a larger garden display. So kind of a different... Um, aspect. There's so so many different scenarios of what you can do with gardens with seeds versus deadheading versus letting them go to seed.
Well, let's get back to our uh, email questions here. This one is coming from Liz Enns, and here's the question, Carla. I have planted a number of hostas under my paper birch. I have added compost to the soil. I water every day, sometimes twice. The plants are all looking very sad, very droopy. They're turning brown, and the hostas aren't growing at all. What would you suggest to Liz? Well, there's kind of a scenario that's in through here because if we're planting underneath the canopies of some trees, depends on the maturity of the tree, those trees in essence on themselves are grasping that moisture. They're going to be the ones that are going to take as much of the moisture as they can. And even going to a paper birch, paper birch are notorious for loving moisture. So they are in essence going to take as much as they can because we know that you can even plant them lakeside or riverside or streamside because they are heavier uh, they need heavier requirements for their moisture content so there could be a little bit of competitive action between those two items that's on it but if you're finding that you're watering every day uh, sometimes twice a day there could be another aspect that it that maybe and I'm not going to say it's in hard stone but maybe they're getting too much moisture because there is a possibility that some plants still need that uh, root area to come up and take a breath if there's too much moisture in the ground. All right. Well, one thing I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about today is uh, a topic I know that you have a passion for, Carla, and that's landscaping and thinking about landscaping and how to bring different plants together to put together the most beautiful backyard display. And while we're on break, I want you to think about this question, Carla, and that's what sort of decisions we should be making regarding landscaping, considering it's been a dry year and perhaps we're in a bit of a drier pattern right now. So we'll uh, throw that question to you after the break. Again, it's the Lawn and Garden Journal. No phone call questions today. It's a special email edition of the show. We'll uh, get Carla's answer to that question and also wrap up the show after this. And this is the Lawn and Garden Journal. It's Saturday, August 21st. Just a reminder, no phone call questions today, but of course, uh, host Carla Hersina is here from St. Mary's Nursery and Garden Center. I'm Chris Sumner, co-hosting today. And uh, before we went to break, Carla, I gave you the heads up about this final topic I wanted to touch on, and, and that's landscaping. And before we get to the exact question, just tell us a little bit about your passion for landscaping. I know it's something that you really, really enjoy. It is because the landscape, whether you're on acreages or on small properties, creating that garden aspect that is your characteristic or what you're looking for gives you your own little oasis. And there are so many different properties and so many different uh, areas. And it all depends on the character of your home and your and your lifestyles is how a person uh, creates that or it can be designed for you so there are so many endless possibilities of of characteristics that you can design into a um, backyard or front yard you know uh, it's like a palette with a painter having uh, a new creation and this doesn't just affect uh, new properties there is a twist that you can put on existing properties that makes characteristics change even if you have areas that have been uh, pre-existing by adding by looking at things seeing how things have flow of traffic and even when people are doing their own properties sometimes using your neighbors properties as an accent because a 
sometimes you maybe not you don't need to plant a big tree because your neighbors already have those big trees so focus on those accent plants that will make your property pop so it's almost those site visits that you look at things and you know it's it's like I just think it's so beautiful that you have a, a palette to work with and dealing with so many different types of plants that we're able to use to make those creations is sometimes exciting too as well. Absolutely. I, I love looking at pictures online of different landscapes. Now people have brought color and size and spacing into play. And I was thinking about all these things before we got together this morning, Carla, and just the fact that it's been a really hot, dry summer. And, and just to reflect back to summer 2020, it was also pretty hot and pretty dry. If we're to assume that maybe we're into a bit of a cycle of, of drier weather, what would you suggest to folks who are either landscaping from scratch or are looking at making some changes on their yards? What can they do to maybe bring a more drought-tolerant aspect to their yard? Well, if you're looking at a drought tolerance, and sometimes when you're doing a drought tolerant, that's sometimes keyed in with low maintenance because that's kind of part and parcel with what's in there. So if you're looking for that area of it, we're definitely targeting plants that once they're established with those good spring uh, rains and moistures, plants that can sustain themselves throughout the season, ornamental grasses, or even plants that take that high heat aspect. Uh, you know, uh, when we look at some of the perennials, if you're in um, that aspect of wanting in sedums and rutabecchias, and uh, probably one of my favorites this year is proskia that's on there. It's on like, like the Rus Russian sage. These almost give you reminiscent looks of uh, prairies that have almost prairie type plants that are in there, especially with the ornamental grasses because they are definitely a low maintenance. Now I'm going to say low maintenance, no water, but that's when they've hit the maturity. You have to understand when you're doing a landscape and you're wanting to switch to create these low maintenance gardens, we just can't put them in and say, okay, it's going to be low maintenance because we need to get, always get these plants established first before they become low maintenance. So in some aspects too, uh, maybe downsizing on the amount of uh, sod or turf that you have in your yard, that's going to play a factor that's on it. Maybe by incorporating uh, uh, more decks and livable spaces helps you to remove some of that sodded and turf areas and then you also still have livable spaces that do not have to be maintained. Uh, like I love looking, especially when you're looking at your structures of your house, look for areas and maybe plant and optimize the plants that need a little bit more moisture in areas that are lower lying that have those currents of where that moisture is going to be flowing. You're going to be looking and targeting at areas of your house where you have those downspouts that says, okay, when we do have rain, these are the areas that we need to target the plants that require the moisture more that's going to be able to be beneficial to those plants. Now, there's one thing I always have to sort of suggest that when we're doing low maintenance and we want low maintenance and there is a reservoir of sort of watering requirements, the one thing that I always endorse not to do is to plant in uh, trees and shrubs that uh, are in the path of sump hoses. I know that it's, if you want to reserve the water from a sump hose, put the sump hose to an area where you can collect the water, but having that constant use of water dumping from the sump hoses into gardens 
in early spring and late, late fall, it could actually cause a detriment to some of the plants because those are cycles of early spring and late fall that we need our plants to come out of their dormancy at the time set by the environment, not by the moisture that's being released from our houses because it could either cause those plants to waken up too fast or stay in growth pattern too long when they should be entering into a dormancy pattern. So it's understanding the environment and understanding your uh, space that's going to allow you to be able to develop into those low uh, moisture, low content or low maintenance gardens that require less watering. So those are understandings too. And it could even be in a realm that if you're doing your re-landscaping, maybe it's a water cycle or an irrigation system that you want to get in advance so that you have targeted areas that you definitely want to put moisture into to invest in that landscape, whereas other areas, if they're conditioned to be in more drought, you don't need to have that application. That's Carla Hersina, host of the Lawn and Garden Journal. It's been a very special email edition of the show. A big thank you to everybody who sent in email questions over the summer season. There's literally been dozens. We couldn't get to all of them today, but we thought we would spend one show and at least try and get a few of them out. And uh, Carla, it is the 21st of August, and I look at my calendar. The 28th of August is next week. You'll be back in studio for live calls, correct? That is correct, and we look forward to speaking to everyone about gardening again on the Lawn and Garden Journal. Absolutely, and that is it for our show today. Thank you so much for joining us. The Lawn and Garden Journal, Carla, like she said, will be back next week, Saturday, August 28th, for live calls. Until then, have a wonderful day.